Truth Espresso, episode 140. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. there friends fans and lurkers this is your host daniel minnick along with my co-host my sweet beautiful wife chelsea and we are going to finally get back to continuing and finishing up our series on marriage and as i mentioned in the interview with dr hugh ross we're going to get back to talking about the topic of divorce and i know this is a kind of a difficult sometimes taboo topic to talk about, but it's something that we need to understand, especially uh, Christians who follow the Word of God, need to understand the role that divorce plays in the understanding of marriage, and especially as Christians, how we can avoid divorce if possible, but also understand the grounds for divorce. And and it looks like this is going to be a two-parter here, because we've got a decent amount of information to talk about what is divorce and the grounds for divorce and so back with me to talk about this topic is um, my sweet beautiful wife Chelsea so Chelsea uh, thank you for co-hosting Truth Espresso here with me again Aw, thanks for having me. And I guess this is an extra special introduction since you said sweet, beautiful wife twice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, you know, when we're talking about divorce, so I want to make sure that we, uh, I do my part to make sure that <laughs> so we divorce-proof our marriage. So sweet, Aww. beautiful, sweet, beautiful wife. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Oh, I love you, sweetheart. Oh, love you. All right, enough with the mushy gush. (laughs) Get into some, you know, kind of the opposite of mushy gushy with this topic here. Mm. Um, I have some interesting statistics or information about divorce as it exists, especially in the United States. I'm sure that you find these statistics somewhat similar in other countries too, but in the United States, I've seen from different sites roughly... It's anywhere from 40 to 50% of all marriages end in divorce, around 44% I've seen, and I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. I don't have it in my notes, <laughs> a source for that, but yeah, it's about 44%. So I think it's kind of interesting when I was looking at the statistics too that there's quite a bit of confusion as to what the actual divorce rate is mm. because they measure it so differently. Oh, yes. There's three different ways they measure it. And Focus on the Family has a good article kind of explaining the different ways they measure the divorce rate and how we have such variable numbers with that. And some of the ways they measure it, they actually include all people mm, yes. in their numbers. So. Um, Children, singles, widows, 
so that really skews the number that we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. But in general, the consensus is the divorce rate is really high. Mm-hmm. And that is something that should be concerning to us as Christians. Because the divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is mm-hmm. very closely related. Even Christians uh, can enter into marriage without uh, proper planning and understanding the a biblical idea of marriage. And so, yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, statistics of divorce among Christians is similar to those among non-Christians. And yeah, as you mentioned, sweetheart, the way it's measured, it's like 40-some in for every 1,000 people, you know, are married and I think 20-something you know, for every thousand people or divorce. And that's kind of how they measure the rate of divorce. Some of these statistics, it's kind of weird there. I've also seen some sources that will talk about the rate of divorce is actually going down, but, and that's coupled with, no pun intended there, but (laughs) coupled with the rate of marriage going down. and, And so, Yeah, with marriage itself, the definition of marriage, you know, kind of going down the tubes today, and really it's it's almost like just a a contract for property and living in the same house, and you have all these relationships that aren't legally defined as marriage, so, you know, from a Christian perspective, having intimacy, living together, and having a family, you know, should be considered biblically, you know, part of the statistics on marriage, but these statistics don't really cover the idea of what's called shacking up or stuff like that, where they don't legally get a marriage license. And so, yeah, those relationships come and go, but they don't fall under the marriage and divorce statistics. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, divorce rates about 44% among the, what's counted as marriage today. And that's not good, even if it's not an accurate statistic on relationships and how they end. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what do you think some of the causes or like reasons for divorce might be? Oh, yeah. So we're going to get into some leading causes of divorce here. So yeah, with the rates of divorce high, what are some of the reasons people get divorced that contribute to these divorce rates? And I went to one of the best sources for it, probably, at least according to the domain name, it's divorcenet.com. And you get different lists and different top reasons depending on where you look, but this site seemed to be one that provides divorce services. And so to me, as much as that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I think it's probably a place where you get more accurate reasons for divorce. Like they're going to admit things rather than sugarcoat them. (laughs) And so I know that some articles and sites I've seen would list like financial reasons for the top. Others would list um, infidelity, uh, extramarital affairs for the top. And no doubt those are top reasons. 
But according to DivorceNet.com, the top reasons, number one, at uh, at least according to surveys, uh, it was about, I think, 85% listed a lack of commitment. <laughs> and that sounds like a generic reason, and that's probably why it got that many as an answer for that. But I think that does reflect, <laughs> in general, why people get divorced, because a lot of people, it seems, enter into marriage kind of flippantly and they don't really understand the biblical reason for divorce. You know, a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, cleaves to his wife, and they two become one flesh to see that marriage is an institution God created for the purpose of an intimate bond. You know, they become one flesh and so we are. We talked about in the series a lot of advice about marriage uh, for husbands and wives and understanding communication and seeking the good of each other looking at what how you could give but it seems like a lot of people think of marriage like a fairy tale and it's kind of like you know you find that special person who will just make life into a dream there where everything's easy and there's <laughs> like now all my troubles and difficulties are gone and then people will wake up in a sense not far into marriage and just like wait what did I get into there's something that's difficult here you mean I have to do this uh, you know I don't feel like doing that or you don't share my passions for these trivial things and yeah so it's like people enter into marriage with the idea that they're not really committing to anything they're just looking for what they get out of it and when they see that there's more to marriage than just what they get out of it that they want an easy out and that seems like what makes sense to be one of the top reasons for divorce when you don't treat marriage as sacred you know treat divorce flippantly too <laughs> <laughs> and then the second reason seems to kind of follow from that. It says incompatibility and growing apart, <laughs> which I think, you know, <laughs> a lack of commitment is kind of related to that. Where how many times do we hear people say, you know, oh, we're just not compatible? Well, did you get to know each other before you got married? And why is it that just now, after three years or so, you find out you're incompatible? Like, how did you think you were compatible before and then you somehow find out you're not compatible? <laughs> and we're just growing apart well <laughs> how did you get close to begin with and then find out that you're growing apart <laughs> like you know to me it just seems like there's other things that at the root of those reasons <laughs> so i guess i'm trying to understand the incompatibility part of it <laughs> is that because they're being selfish and they want the other person to just fit into mm. everything that person wants and since <laughs> they're not like conforming to everything they want then they're like oh we're incompatible and it just seems kind of weird to say that you're not compatible like it's okay I think in some of those cases it's like you really didn't get to know each other in any serious way before you got together you know we think of 
when people like before they get married, you know, some people who don't approach it from a biblical perspective, it's like the things they do together are superficial activities, you know, go to a movie, go out to dinner and just go out to do these activities that are just, they don't reflect the fullness of life. It's like just a fun activity. So it's so surface level. And then do they talk to each other and find out about each other's hopes and dreams, strengths, and things like that. We talked about, you know, in earlier episodes in the series. So how many people do end up getting married when they hardly know each other because they had such superficial relationship? And then once they live together, it's like, okay, now you learn about habits. Now you learn about secret vices or something you know it's like i didn't know you took drugs or something you know it's like why wouldn't you even ask about that you didn't know about that or you know things like well i knew that he or she did that but i thought they would just get rid of it when they marry me like (laughs) seriously yeah that's uh how many times that kind of situation happens where people enter into marriage and either they think something is going to change that has never changed before that point, or they learn about things about their spouse after they get married that they never, like it was a complete mystery and they didn't think to ask, didn't think to engage in situations where that would become apparent because everything was so surface level that now you find find out about that and i think that's a lot of what this incompatibility and growing apart is <laughs> is surface level fun and not really getting to know each other before you make a commitment <laughs> and then the third reason there's more reasons but the top three i'll say from this uh divorce net is uh communication problems so <laughs> We see how these top three are very much related. They're almost like one (laughs) point split out into three. But yeah, communication problems are (laughs) really one of the biggest problems in marriage. And we did talk about that too. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't talk, (laughs) you're going to be incompatible you're going to grow apart and if you're not talking that demonstrates a lack of commitment (laughs) and communication helps you to understand if if your spouse is having a problem it helps you resolve issues together and instead of springing on you know your spouse some goal that requires a lot of sacrifice on the part of your spouse you, you communicate things through you communicate daily and you know we talked about things like finding time to talk with each other even like after the kids are in bed or things like what we do we will find moments here and there in the evening when I get home from work and so on we'll find sometimes to catch up on our days and even communicate with texts and so on some phone calls during the day you know so keep communicating with your spouse and that's one way to avoid the nasty d word there (laughs) I think it's also good to point out, too, that some people might feel frustrated, like, I'm not sure how to communicate or how to have these discussions with my spouse and maybe seeking counsel or the help from a trusted Christian in your church, like a mentor or even a Christian counselor. 
And I think that sometimes people get frustrated, like, I don't even know what to say or what to do. And they just kind of give up. Mm. But instead of giving up and being like, you know, this is hopeless, but actively pursuing resources and help to keep that communication line open and keep trying to learn about each other and how to improve or better your relationship and I'm just thinking of a few Christians that I've seen where it almost seems like they just give up. Like, okay, he's never going to listen to me or she's never going to be quiet. (laughs) It's like, oh, why can't you try and work it out or actively seek help? Or it seems like people find that it's not easy and it takes work Mm. and it does. But because it does, then people quickly say, I want out of this. I give up. (laughs) Because some people are just simply not willing to make it work by putting in work. Mm -hmm. Like if something takes work, it's like, well, that's not for me. And yeah, the whole idea of how important communication is. Yeah, sometimes it's hard because you're afraid to do it or you don't feel like doing it and so on, but it's it's absolutely vital. And one of the problems is some couples, it's like, a, you know, we mentioned earlier about passive aggressive communication, that type of thing, or the fact that some couples like they can't be honest with each other and they have a difficulty communicating because they're always having to read between the lines or you said this but I know you meant this you know and and one of the ways to resolve that is like you both got to be open and honest and say okay I'm gonna let my yay be yay and your nay nay let you know let's both agree to do that and sometimes some couples their communication with each other goes through a third party (laughs) so it's like okay find a middle person and I'm going to talk to my friend here and then my friend talks to you and so on and then you have the gossip chain and yeah it's like okay just talk with each other just agree to be honest and yeah (laughs) so that's one of the leading causes of divorce Uh, you know it's these uh kind of lack of commitment, incompatibility, and communication problems, they're all related there. And a lot of the other things like affairs and financial disagreements and and stuff like that, kind of, they can be consequential results of these other ones. So let's um, get into a biblical understanding of divorce. And now, I know both of us have grown up with an understanding of divorce that I think we've changed a little bit from because I know I grew up with kind of a hyper-fundamentalist understanding of divorce. And, you know, like we talked about, we went through the Pearls book (laughs) and an article written by Michael and Debbie Pearl. And I know they had the same idea, basically like divorce could not in any way conceivably be an option even if your spouse is a criminal you know basically and i mean i remember growing up just thinking divorce just can't be an option and of course the difficult questions where it'd be like well what about this what about if their spouse is one is threatening the other one's life and i'd be like trying to think how do i resolve this i mean how do 
do I just stick to my guns somehow and make sure that divorce just cannot ever possibly be an option? Like, don't bother me with the details, you know, kind of thing. I remember being raised and kind of thinking about that. And so I've kind of adjusted my view a little bit to what it seems like the Bible has a more nuanced understanding or definition or grounds for divorce than that. And I remember, you know, those in church who were divorced, a lot of people would look at them as second-class members or basically like they're stuck in a situation where they're condemned to be living in continual sin with no way to reconcile because their spouse is remarried and stuff like that. So it's like, okay, you know, they can't reverse that, but we always have to look down on them and they can't fix that. And like, it's so graceless there, you know? Yeah. So that's not quite the view that I think that we're going to be um, promoting on this episode, even as we talk about why God doesn't like divorce, how many people get divorced for petty reasons. And so I think there's a more nuanced view than the absolute no divorce under any circumstances view and the no-fault divorce for any reason view. (laughs) So I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Ask away, sweetheart. (laughs) So why do we only see men putting away women in the law? (laughs) So why do we only see that? Wait, do we only see that in the law? (laughs) Well, yeah. I remember... Of course, because today we're accustomed to the idea one spouse can file for divorce against the other, and it doesn't matter who, either one of them can file for divorce. But I remember studying it and just kind of like trying to overlook this sometimes, but it seemed like the law in the Bible, the Old Testament, will constantly just talk about men putting away their wives. And so it it seems like this is kind of a shibboleth, you know, (laughs) something that many Christians just don't want to mention, will overlook or ignore this fact intentionally. But yeah, that does seem to be that the in the law of Moses, divorce seems to be only defined as an action that a man does to his wife. <laughs> so the common text at hand here in the law that actually talks about, it gives the conditions or the law of divorce. And it says in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, so a second divorce there, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled for that is abomination before the lord and thou shalt not cause the land to sin which the lord thy god giveth thee for an inheritance and so yeah it seems like this passage is the most well-known passage in the law for giving the uh, definition of a bill of divorcement and so it seems like if you just read that the man if he just doesn't want his wife anymore he can give her a bill of divorcement and 
the only thing is it's kind of like, well, if he does give her this bill of divorcement, then he can't change his mind about it. Because then once, if she does marry someone else and then her second husband divorces her, then the first husband can't say, okay, I'll take you back. Like there's that limitation there. So he does have to have a good reason there. And we'll talk about in the grounds for divorce when the wording there where it says she finds no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her and there's different schools of thought different interpretations about what those two phrases mean and if they're conjunctive or disjunctive and so on like that there's provision right there in the law of Moses for a bill of divorcement, but it's only mentioned in terms of the man uh, giving his wife a bill of divorcement. And there's nothing about, well, and also if the wife wants to give her husband a bill of divorcement, and then every other occurrence mentioning divorce in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets, it's a man giving a bill of divorcement to his wife. And as I read all that, you know, it would bother me because I think, is this really fair? It seems like quite patriarchal and at least, well, of course, in the sense of how that era and in all the other countries, all the other nations at the time, it seems like things were even more patriarchal than Israel was, but the law of Israel there and the provisions for divorce seem to be rather patriarchal. <laughs> so I think I might disagree with you a little bit on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's we can. That's what makes a healthy marriage because we can, you know, disagree on some things while still, you know, <laughs> being married and. <laughs> So, from a woman's perspective, mm. I'm thinking that these verses aren't necessarily showing a patriarchal system, but a way of how God designed men to actually protect oh, yeah. and provide for women. Mm -hmm. And this is just trying to ensure that the woman is still provided for, even if there is divorce taking place. And so, to me, it's not this like macho patriarchal type of system, but it's more God saying, all right, if this is going to happen, divorce is inevitable, then we're going to set up a system where the wife is still taken care of and still provided for. Mm. So yeah. oh, that's kind of my <laughs> take on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess, I don't know if we actually then disagree on that, but maybe I didn't explain what I meant by patriarchal, you know, <laughs> it did, I don't mean like necessarily chauvinistic. I mean, okay. I mean like everything like land that's owned is owned by men. And, and so, yeah, I do have actually have in my notes about the idea of it protecting women in the system. <laughs> but, um, sorry, I didn't read that part. Of notes very well. <laughs> okay. Well, here we go. Oh, we agree. We conflict resolution. <laughs> Good job, babe. <laughs> <High> so, <five. laughs> so what I gather from <laughs> uh, reading about marriage and divorce in the law of Moses, so it would disturb me to see that it's only men putting away women. 
But then I'd have to ask myself the questions like, what really was the sphere of marriage as it's defined in the law? And how does it relate to, you know, the land promises that God would make to Israel, the 12 tribes? You know, you have the tribes, their divisions of land, how the families would be closer knit in their parcels of land. And to keep the land and not go into captivity, there's a lot of stuff about the land and property that pertain to Israel. And so I had to ask myself the question, like, so am I looking at this anachronistically? So, yeah, we have marriage in the United States, 21st century, but does our sphere of marriage, does the scope of what we define marriage as according to our law, line up one-to-one with the way marriage is, the sphere of marriage is defined in the law? And so once I understood that things might not line up one-to-one, that there might be parallels of what goes on today that might parallel what goes on the law, but it's not in the same sphere of marriage, that then things start to make more sense. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. And so let's look at the way we have marriage defined today. And I'm not talking about (laughs) the profaning of marriage. I'm talking about, okay, let's just take a man and woman getting married, say a Christian marriage, you know, not talking about the way the world wants to destroy marriage by having two men and two women and stuff like that. Just say a Christian Western 21st century American understanding of marriage where you have a man and a woman, you have the wedding ceremony, you have the marriage license, and then if a couple is going to dissolve the marriage, if the marriage license ends up in the court, how does that play out? Like legally, what is a marriage in the United States in the 21st century? And the two have a joint ownership on property and, you know, you could file taxes jointly and stuff like that. And then you have the concept of people getting divorced. So you have a husband and wife separate. Either one of them could file the divorce, but then the judge will rule and determine okay, which one of them is really the aggrieved in this situation and who owes the other one what? So they get divorced, they're no longer married, but yet one of them still might owe the other one property or finances or alimony payments and stuff like that. Who gets the house? And, you know, there could be some recurring payment owed from one to the other, you know, for years. But when you look at divorce in the Bible, the bill of divorcement in the the law of Moses, it seems like the bill of divorcement meant that they were separated in all respects. Once the husband got the bill of divorcement, handed to the wife and sent her out, she was completely gone. There is no material compensation after that point. And you might think that 
doesn't sound very good, but really what it means is that today when you have this concept of separation and then, but say the husband or the ex-husband now must pay to maintain the ex-wife there, that concept still seems to fall under the sphere of marriage in the law of Moses. So what would come under the sphere of divorce and alimony today is still part of marriage in the Old Testament. And so in actuality, it seems like the way the bill of divorcement was structured, it was to protect women, as you said, sweetheart. So under the law of Moses, the sphere of marriage included all obligations to provide materially for the wife. And so, yeah, this would seem to protect women. And putting away, as I mentioned, would mean that the man is wholly released from caring for the woman. So in Old Testament times, it was possible to have a husband and wife having no relationship with each other and even living in separate houses that could be both owned by the husband. But the husband still had to provide materially for his wife because they were legally married. So as long as the husband was obligated to provide for his wife, that was still considered in the sphere of marriage. Today, we have divorce and alimony, but in the Old Testament, they were still considered married because the the husband still had to take care of the wife, even if they were separated, even if she had the children or, you know, he had the children or whatever. Whatever the condition was, as long as there was a financial obligation that was considered marriage, even if they weren't, you know, on agreeable terms or having any kind of relationship. So the definition of marriage was much broader as it related to the land. And I think that this was a way to protect women financially. So my next question would be, so if divorce with the view of the Old Testament, then the husband gives the bill of divorce to the wife and now he's no longer supporting her. How does the woman get supported? Is she just kind of left on her own? Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like it says that she's departed out of the house. She may go and be another man's wife. And... (laughs) That could be a difficult situation for her, but it's possible that it wasn't really that difficult. There probably was plenty of men who would be willing to take her as a wife. And I mean, you did have polygyny in the Old Testament, but there was still God's desire and laws against that. You had Deuteronomy 17, that the king could not multiply wives. All the examples of, say, Noah had one wife, his sons had one wife, God created Adam and Eve, one wife there, and there's all kinds of things like in the Proverbs, the Psalms, about the wife of your youth, you know, live faithfully with the wife of your youth, don't drink out of a cistern that you don't own, you know, so there's all kinds of advice and prohibitions against multiplying wives, but, you know, you had the Everett law about if your brother has a wife and your brother dies and he they didn't have children then you raise up seed your children for your brother and so there were some provisions 
promise, and it was based on land, the land promise in Israel. It was all about the land. And so there were some provisions of polygyny, but it wasn't something that God favored otherwise there, except in very minor cases. And God seemed to allow or permit things to happen, even though they weren't according to his moral, you know, desires there. You know, you had King David with multiple wives and Solomon's many wives turned his heart away from God. So there's always a problem with multiple wives. You had Elkanah and then you had Hannah and Penaniah, their conflict there. And yeah, so most of the times when you saw multiple wives, you saw problems. So that was not the ideal <laughs> but it was permitted in Israel i think related to the land promise but you know later on with second temple judaism things started to shift away from that kind of polygyny and you didn't really see that in the new testament and but given some provisions that for polygyny you know i think that the wife who does get divorced with the bill of divorcement would be able to find another husband who would be then obligated to take care of her <laughs> Is that possible that she could go back with her family or with her parents even? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for certain. She, okay. she had family or father, brother, whatever could take care of her. I don't think she was obligated to be a wife, but mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are definitely other options there. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if we move forward a little bit into the New Testament, Jesus actually mentions women putting away their husbands. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those verses? Yeah, so we actually have one verse in the New Testament, and with the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke don't mention that, but Mark actually does, and Mark is the earliest gospel. So Mark 10, verse 12, right after Jesus mentions a man putting away his wife, Jesus is actually addressing this very issue about the bill of divorcement mentioned in the passage that we read earlier. But he says in Mark 10, 12, And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And it's interesting, like, why would Jesus say, And if a woman shall put away her husband? I have three possible understandings of what he meant there. One possibility is that he was speaking either hypothetically or hyperbolically. You know, I don't favor that. <laughs> I think he really meant the possibility that a woman could put away her husband, but that's still one possible understanding, you know. <laughs> Another one, perhaps he was describing the act of a wife willfully leaving and committing adultery as a de facto divorce. So he's describing woman putting away her husband as the woman getting up and leaving and basically dissolving the marriage there, even without a bill of divorcement. That's another possibility. Or the third one is that perhaps the culture was changing at the time so that it was possible or even more common at this time in Second Temple Judaism and with the Roman Empire and stuff like that, that Jewish culture was changing. and It was more common now for women to be authorized to put away their husbands. 
And with the context of this verse, do you think it is talking about, okay, she had grounds to divorce her husband, and since she's the one that initiated, then she's the one committing adultery? Or is it that she possibly didn't have grounds to divorce her husband, and that's why Jesus is saying like that she's committing adultery for doing this? Yeah, because I think he might be talking about like a woman putting away her husband for unwarranted grounds. I think so. It's kind of like she puts him away, kind of like in Malachi 2, which we'll get to in this uh, series here, that the priests were putting away their wives treacherously and for selfish reasons. So I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. If a woman puts away her husband, divorces her husband in the context of it being like a invalid reason, perhaps she was being unfaithful and then she just decides, hey, I'm leaving. And then she's married to another, she commits adultery. So it's kind of like a descriptive thing, I think, is like saying, yeah, a woman puts away her husband for the wrong reason, for the reason that she wants to go and marry another husband. She's an adulteress. (laughs) Thanks, that makes more sense. So I think for this argument that the culture was changing, I think there might be some possible examples of women at this time who divorced their husbands. <laughs> like they're the ones who initiated it. And I think one example is the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, or Jesus gives salvation to the Samaritan woman. And in John 4 verses 17 through 18, it says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that said thou truly. Seems like this woman was like a serial monogamist, <laughs> but you know, she was she had five husbands before, and she kind of had a live-in boyfriend at this time, something like that. And Jesus is still talking graciously with her. He doesn't seem like he's being critical of her, but he is revealing to her like, you know, you're not in an ideal situation, but he's kind of talking to her graciously and allowing her to recognize her situation. But it seems like she, with five prior husbands, she's possibly someone who's done the divorce. You know, she's divorced her husband five times or different husbands there. Another example is Herod's wife, and this is mentioned in the different Gospels. Mark 6, verses 17 through 18 mentions this, and John the Baptist's conflict with Herod there. It says, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias's sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he, referring to Herod, had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. So it's still like you still have the issue of the law and John the Baptist was someone who was stuck to tradition there. And I think he would preach against Herod. I think the case here was that Herod wanted his brother Philip's wife and his brother Philip's wife is like, hey, you know, I'd be better off with Herod. He's got the power. And so they both agreed like she divorced probably like some kind of no fault divorce there with his brother Philip and Mary 
married Herod for no reason there, and John is basically saying, that is wrong. It is not lawful under Moses' law for you to be married to your brother's wife. Your brother didn't die, and you schemed on this, and it seems like, in some sense, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know, Herodias divorced her husband there. Because otherwise, you know, it would be according to the law of Moses there. If Philip was the one who divorced her, then she would be able to go marry Herod. But otherwise, so that's why it seems like she was the one who divorced Philip. And that's why John had an issue with that. (laughs) I think maybe before we wrap this up, that it's good to just remember that divorce is something that affects everyone. And that it isn't something that should just be taken lightheartedly in how we're seeing some of these examples Mm -hmm. in the passages we've read already, that it's something that you have to have the grounds for and you have to really think through and it can have a ripple effect and affect Mm -hmm. lots of people. And so it's, yeah, yeah, just something to keep in mind. And I know that we've talked about this before in our other episodes as well about protecting your marriage and safeguarding it and even acknowledging that you don't want to ever throw divorce out as an option mm. in yes. trying to make your marriage work because you're committed, you love each other, you want to be sacrificial for each other. And that does take two people to do, do that. What's your famous saying for that? <laughs> oh, yeah. It takes two to tango. And of course, that's not something I made up. It's a <laughs> it's a cliche, but I do sometimes say that a lot, especially regarding marriage. Because you know? as we talked about in previous episodes, marriage really does depend on both spouses doing their part. Especially when we talked about the Pearl's book, Created to Be His Help Me, that the power to have a gracious marriage... Or a glorious marriage, as Debbie Pearl put it, does not lie squarely in the lap of one, the wife. If you don't have the husband and the wife striving for a good marriage consciously, you're not going to have a glorious marriage. And so it does take two to tango there. And yeah, good point there, sweetheart, about, you know, not taking divorce flippantly, even as we're talking about the fact that the law of Moses mentions this bill of divorcement there. Because, yeah, we'll talk about in the next episode, Jesus said that it was for the hardness of your hearts that Moses granted the bill of divorce, but in the beginning it was not so. And Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, God's design for marriage that a husband and wife become one flesh. And Jesus mentioned don't let man separate what God has joined together. So God highly values marriage and the design, the intention of marriage is one husband, one wife for life. And we know that in this fallen world, people end up getting divorced as these statistics that we looked at say, and that's because we live in a world of sin. But Christians, especially when we study the word of God, we understand God's design for marriage. We understand how we should treat it, what our delightful obligations are, you know, and how marriage is a delight. If we live according to God's design for marriage, we communicate, we... uh, 
cherish one another. <laughs> cherish one another. We commit to one of the other, the good of one another. We aren't, you know, looking at frivolous concepts of incompatibility or growing apart. Things like that that the world will give as excuses for divorce. We really should, if you commit to marriage as what I can give rather than what I can get and that's what God's design is for one flesh in marriage, then, yeah, we should look at divorce as, like, for me, if I'm doing it right, I'm not going to be the one to initiate divorce for my own selfish reasons. There are, and we'll, you know, we'll mention, there are situations where divorce, you know, when we're talking about the grounds for divorce, there are situations where you can't help it but end up having to get divorced because of emergency situations or very undesirable situations for the sake of health, safety, your children, so on like that. If a spouse is being unfaithful or dangerous and stuff like that, there are grounds for divorce. But if a couple or two Christians who both understand what marriage is and are making the effort, making the commitment, there should be no reason then in that situation for divorce. And so, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode as we talk about the biblical grounds for divorce and uh, different schools of thought about that, too. So <laughs> stay tuned and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 